time to hate watch with us. So this week, House of Cards Season 5 finally hit Netflix, and guess what, y'all? I watched all 13 episodes between Tuesday, May 30th, and Saturday, June 3rd? What is time? I don't know. (laughs) So we are going to do not necessarily a recap of the whole season, because unlike me, some people in this podcast haven't finished the season yet. (laughs) I'm the weak link in this friendship. I'm sorry. (laughs) And we know that some of you out there probably haven't finished the season yourselves. So we are going to be speaking in broad strokes about season five of House of Cards. You will probably also hear some other feelings about the show in general. Now, I know we talked a little bit about House of Cards a couple of episodes ago in episode 13. I promise we've got some spicy hot takes for you this week. After that, we are going to be circling back on a lovely Saturday adventure that Kelsey and I had this week, and we are going to be talking about television that you can knit to, because Kelsey and I just went and bought a whole bunch of new knitting projects together. So we're forcing our friendship traditions upon you. (laughs) The unbreakable bond of knitting. So we're going to be talking about what makes good television for knitting and how that can apply to people who multitask in other ways. Yeah, general crafters. General crafters, like all of our friends who will be preparing for NBC's The Handmaid Project. That's right. Yeah, so House of Cards was a thing that happened. It certainly happened, huh? So... If you recall from a few episodes ago, maybe you listened, maybe you didn't, Kirstie and I almost always watched the full season together over one weekend, and with that kind of time pressure and sort of like back-to-back episode schedule, I don't know if it's easier to digest or you just feel like you have to watch them all before the weekend's over and that's why it's easier to get through, but this season in particular, like I tried to get through more than five and a half episodes. And it was just grating. And part of it, I'm sure, is the political climate that we live in today. And I just, it's painful. Yeah. It's it's just tough. Netflix is usually, their game plan is usually to drop it at midnight on Friday. So, you know, Thursday into Friday. And then that way, most of their viewers are binging Friday through Sunday, some of them into Monday, depending on the timing. As we mentioned a couple episodes ago, I don't remember what the release date was for the first season because you and I, Kelsey, watched that a couple months after it came out or like a month or two after it came out. Yeah. And that was the only season that we watched remote. The other... But we did watch it simultaneously. We did watch it simultaneously. We perfected our craft. But the other three seasons we watched on the release day, and then we finished the whole thing in a a weekend in one sitting. I have to say that not only do I resent Netflix's choice to release it on a weekday, but I really fundamentally do not understand it. Like, I would love to hear that explanation from someone at Netflix because it just, not only is it a break with tradition, it just, like, does not make sense. The other thing that I will say is parts of this season were a slog. This is a little bit back to the point that I made in episode 13 about the way that Netflix branding and presentation alters my feeling about the narrative and the full product of the show itself. 
I really struggled with like the first eight episodes of the season and episodes nine through 13 were a completely different story for me. And so while I'm walking away from this episode or from the season feeling like it was really worthwhile, I also am walking away from it recognizing that if I did not binge it, I probably would not have finished it. So if I was watching it with the same workflow that you watch a normal show of like one episode a night or like an episode every couple of nights, I would have burned the fuck out and would not have crossed the finish line. And that would have been a major tragedy for this season. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm, I'm feeling. I think I spent the last 24 hours trying to get through one episode. (laughs) Yeah, so parts of this season to me felt like it suffered from some of the pacing issues of season three. However, Mm -hmm. I am working on a theory. I'm actually conducting a full study, the results of which are not in yet, so stay tuned, dear listeners. But (laughs) I I have a theory that there is a pacing cycle in the show that uses the slog of the full season to its advantage. And then from around, it feels as if there's a turning point around episodes nine of any given season through the end where shit just gets real so fast. I'm also working on a secondary theory that episode 12 of most seasons may be the most pivotal episode of any given season. Sure. Stay tuned. However, I did write... So I didn't take any notes at all this season until the end of episode 12. And then in a complete panic, I left off the couch so fast that my husband was concerned, I think for like my physical well-being for a moment there. (laughs) in search of a legal pad so that I could start writing notes. And one of the notes was, how do they make the slog so necessary? I mean, do you find it necessary or do you find it like suffering from the Netflix plague of feeling like they have to fulfill 12 episodes when really they could do it in eight? I think that is what happened in season three. But I think season two, season five and maybe season four made the slog necessary. I think season five weaponizes the slog. Interesting. So maybe there are listeners there who aren't familiar with what I'm talking about. And really what I mean is that the show spends a lot of time really belaboring political process and spending a lot of time showing Frank and Claire talking about the stakes that they're dealing with. And I... Back in season one or two, I read the criticism, which I've also heard about Game of Thrones, that you come into the show universe knowing that the stakes are high for the characters because the characters say so, but that the show and the characters never do the work of actually making the viewers feel that the stakes are high. And so a lot of the slog is just reiterating to you that this is like a high pressure situation and that if it if the House of Cards comes tumbling down, then like stuff will be bad. And I think the hardest thing for me about the slog times are <laughs> when it's all so much um, like B and C characters talking to each other about mm-hmm. words and policy. <laughs> and it's like, it doesn't seem actually relevant or necessary to to the plot to be talking about this. And it just seems like filler conversation. And I'm like, dear God, like, why? Why, why, well, why, and why? Especially because... A lot, House of Cards is, like, pretty liberal with dropping plot points. And, like, I think we've we've talked 
a little bit on the show about the fact that one of my distractions as a viewer is that I assume that everything that's being presented in the narrative is going to be important permanently in the narrative. And so I do struggle with House of Cards because they'll say something like there was a whole thing with Raymond Tusk for several seasons who's like this rich guy. And (laughs) TLDR. (laughs) TLDR, Raymond Tusk is rich and government (laughs) happens. And he kind of shows up once in a while and like there were some elevated stakes around Frank's relationship with Raymond Tusk and then he just kind of disappears. And there are a lot of different plot points where the show is really comfortable being like, this is important for two episodes and now it's not. Right. Um, And so that does make it hard when there's all these like C and D characters having lots of dense conversations about the party and policy and foreign affairs and whatever and you as a viewer like don't have a great way of knowing which is going to be important or not yeah and I also struggle from like and I only ever watched these seasons once so I don't know if you're meant to watch them more than (laughs) once but I (laughs) literally can never remember who anyone is or what happened in like a granular detail in the prior season like even with the Netflix like recap at the beginning I'm like I have no fucking clue who you're talking about (laughs) no idea what's happening I'm just going in blind yeah I think I've seen half of season one twice other than the time that I watched it all the way through and I've been recently doing some read-throughs of recaps and the Wikipedia descriptions of episodes And I still feel the same way, which I think gets back to the point that was made in episode 13's conversation about the show, which is that, like, the writing isn't actually that much better than what's being put forth on network. There's a lot of the same major problems in the writing. But branding and marketing aside, I do think what the show is doing well is it's using its artistic devices in particular to create really intense visceral reactions at times. And I do think that, like, those artistic devices and the emotional connection that I end up having with moments in the show, like, far outweighs what they could be doing with writing. Yeah, I mean, I think my other struggle with it is that, especially in this season, like, I don't have anyone who I care about the outcome of the show for, like, in any way. I know in season one, for example... I cared about that one guy. What was his name? Oh, Peter Russo. Yeah. Like, I cared about Peter Russo. I miss Peter Russo. You know, um, the journalist, whatever her name is. Zoe. I remember so much from this show. But there's, you you know, I like to have someone to at least care about the outcome or, or be interested in it. But at this point in the show, I just am over it with everyone. And there's no one who they are working to make me, um, either feel concern for or interest in it's just sort of people talking at me well I think what's hard is that like the show is pretty upfront with the viewer both through like the narrative and through just straight up breaking the fourth wall and having Frank Underwood like spell it the fuck out for you about saying that the whole point of the show is is telling the story of how power corrupts you and making the point that there's no way to seek power and not become corrupted by it. It's definitely, like, this came out at the same time as Breaking Bad, so it's playing with the exact same sense of the antihero. And so it's not just about Frank's search for power, but the way that all of these other people who came in with integrity and good intentions got wrapped up and corrupted by him, because there's no other way to engage with power. 
than through evil. Well, right, but it feels like they're just hitting the same beats over and over again. I think because they've reduced the soul-searching to that concept alone, they have to, right? Even when they had characters where, like, you could build out that story a little bit, there's nothing else they can do with it besides be like, power's bad, we think. Well, right, which doesn't make for very compelling television in my mind (laughs) at this point in the game. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of interesting things that I kept a pulse on was, you know, a lot of the feedback through seasons one and two is that, or was that Frank does whatever he wants and he never gets punished. There was so much writing done in the first couple of seasons and so much chatter on the internet about how viewers were frustrated that Frank just did stuff and kept climbing the ladder and never faced retribution for it. And I think the writers, the writers knew what they were doing with that and I'm not saying that the writers completely altered course in the story because of that feedback, but as we've said before, the writers are definitely making an effort to show that they are responsive to their fans. And so you started to see some changes in the plot where Frank was receiving punishment and retribution, and that's a lot of what this season is about, is Frank having to face face punishment. Mm-hmm. And somehow, like, there are parts of it that are interesting, and then there are parts of it that are lazy, But the interesting thing that came out of it to me is the way that his comeuppance, as it were, like, changes the dynamic between him and Claire. Mm -hmm. And then I think it did create, in a couple of instances, like, an opportunity to show Frank as his truest self. And that's, like, about as much as we got from that part of it. Mm -hmm. There's a monologue that happens at the beginning of episode 13 that I'm still very much wrestling with. But what I've come away with is that as much as I felt like it was lazy storytelling, it was Frank at his truest. And maybe that was the only purpose of episode five was to really like distill Frank to like the simplest form of himself, which I think Mad Men played with that, right? Like they kept hitting the same beat over and over again just to show Don. Don. That was not what I was coming up with. (laughs) (laughs) Just to, like, really prove that Don was actually disgusting and that while it seemed like he was constantly being rewarded for his behavior, he wasn't. Interesting. So my favorite thing so far, though, in terms of of fascinating choices that this show has made has been the speechwriter who is absolutely no chill. I can't even. So we're talking about Tom Yates, who comes on in season four? Or does he come on in season three? I thought it was season three. I don't know. He starts off as Frank's biographer because, like, some policy of Frank's isn't going well. And so Frank is like, well, I'll get it. I'll write a book and that'll help. (laughs) And so he hires Tom Yates. He follows them around on the campaign trail. And he's like, this asshole hipster bro. And uh, he and Claire start to bang yeah yeah because 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 of stuff it makes more sense for claire to sleep with the biographer and so fast forward a few seasons and he's literally like well what am i are we a couple or am i just your boyfriend am i your first boyfriend (laughs) and there's this whole conversation about how like there's language for like the first lady but there's you know does he become now the first boyfriend? Because you know, Frank's <laughs> president and he's the mistress. So literally the only time you see Tom this whole season, he's just kicking around the residence. 
He's just oh, yeah. in the White House, like, in Claire's bedroom. Like, that's just where he lives now. It is where he lives now. I hate him with such a fiery passion. I don't even hate him. I don't hate anyone because I don't care about anyone on the show. I do care about him because he has no place in this story. But what is he? What does he declare? We need to know. <laughs> I mean, it's a worthwhile question because what the fuck is he to the narrative? He is nothing. I Who is anyone in the that. show to the narrative at this point? Like, dear Lord, I'm so over it. <laughs> Netflix, what have you done? <laughs> no, that's fair. I think I have been in that place for a really long time. The one thing that Netflix and whoever took over as the showrunner from our friend Bo. <laughs> <laughs> Bo Wilmington? Bo Wilmington. I kept, I kept reading his name every time it would come up on the t- in the credits. And I, I just refuse to believe that Willington is a name. It's not. It's Willimon. Will, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> well, that's even worse. It sound, he sounds like a Digimon. Like, Bo, <laughs> you're, you sound like a Digimon. You don't even sound like a Pokemon. You sound like a Digimon. Like, you are that second rate. Wow, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so on my advice... <laughs> <laughs> you should just fix your name to something something more sensible. Right. This is an arena where I have a lot of experience, so. <laughs> <laughs> just ask Russell Crowe. Oh, Russell. Formerly known as Cameron Crowe. <laughs> the Crowe Brothers. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Oh. Um... So, I was going to make a Counting Crows joke, but I feel like it went too far. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, showrunners, huh? Showrunners. The other thing that really just made me, you know, just push my buttons in episode one when I tried to take notes was the Charlie Rose segment. So they have this segment where they're supposed to be on Charlie Rose and to signify that it was in fact a television recording and they weren't just sitting around a desk wearing microphones for no reason. (laughs) They put this like overlay of vertical lines across the screen as if anyone in 2017 with HGTV, HD, not HD. (laughs) I'll bet that but, I mean, get you a girl that can do both. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, as if anyone who has HDTV in 2017 has vertical lines on their screen when they're watching television. Well, like, that is not a modern metaphor for a television recording. No, it's not. I missed that entirely, so that's a fantastic catch. But Ugh. they make way more use of that... I don't even know what it is. It's not a trope of that attempt at reality way more (laughs) in this season than they have in past seasons where they choose real life reporters and like their TV networks and their TV sets. And then they throw the actors on the set and do like a pundit segment. Yeah. So they have Tom Hammerschmidt on Rachel Maddow and they have like the Charlie Rose segment and blah, blah, blah. And I just kept thinking, like, they give these real-life reporters where, like, Rachel Maddow and Anderson Cooper, they picked a guy from Fox, like, all these people do this literally all day, every day, and they just handed them a script, and I just think, like, what must that feel like? (laughs) Because 
a lot of those segments really do read like a fan fiction. I mean, I know what this feels like because I get proposed social copy for tweets on a daily basis from people who don't really know what Fair tweets enough. are. So, so build that out for me. So I'll get something that's like, I don't know, formatted incorrectly, or they'll be like, insert this emoji. My favorite thing is when people write out what emoji it is. And they'll be like, <laughs> insert arms flexing emoji three times. <laughs> I'm like, what? What? Um, and then I, it's like, okay. And then sometimes it's, I'm not in a position to be able to change it because of agreements with certain people. And then I'm like, I'm just going to post this thing and hope no one I know who knows I work on this channel <laughs> thinks it's for me. I can't remember what Rachel Maddow's scene was in this season, but I remember watching it and being like, like, I didn't even buy her acting. And I was like, she must have just sort of swallowed it and put up with it for the three hours of her day that it took to do it and then like put it behind her and went and had a nice glass of wine you know but also like it was so insulting to if like, I'm getting an extra cash bump to like post a shitty tweet like maybe my tweets can be bought <laughs> fair enough I don't know. It just feels like a really bold move. Critics talk a lot about when shows have like a character who's a writer and then they read a section of their writing and the viewer is left trying to decide if it's actually good writing or not. Yeah. I feel like it's the same thing when you take like a real life journalist and you give them fake journalism. Are you as a viewer supposed to believe that this is like what this person's job is like? Right. It's certainly interesting. So what I was going to say about the showrunners... I yeah. remembered where that thought was going before Bo ruined my life the second time. <laughs> Bo, if you're out there, we should get a cup of coffee sometime. <laughs> Change your fucking name. <laughs> and then we'll go to the DMV. <laughs> so <laughs> there are a lot of things in season four where in the time and place, especially like when they decided to put Claire on the ticket and run her as VP, I almost walked away from the show for good. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like they've taken reality too far. I can no longer suspend my disbelief. This is absurd. LOL. Especially because the, the show like House of Cards is supposed to be telling us something about our democracy and our government and the people in power. Like the reason Frank is so obsessed with power is because it's supposed to be holding up a mirror to our own government. I get it. Mm -hmm. And so that, like, pissed me off. Watching season five in these, our modern times, was <laughs> definitely not in a positive way. I found it really grounding. So, like, every episode, there would be at least one moment where the automatic reflex in my brain is like, oh, this is absurd. And then I could literally think of a thing that counters it in real life. Yeah. And what's so painful about this, and we talked about this already, is that the writing and production for this was done during the election, so before inauguration. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this was done when stuff was kind of weird in when the we world. we still had hopes and dreams. <laughs> it was done 
and prior to Trump's America. And then here we are. So there's two monologues that happened. There's a monologue in episode nine and there's a monologue in episode 12. And both of them, the whole time Frank was on screen talking, I like grabbed my husband's arm and I just kept shouting, I can't. Because I don't know how Bo did it a full year plus in advance, but it's like he scooped up all of DC and just made it live on my nose. Mm -hmm. I've been processing it a lot in the last couple days, needless to say. And I think that from season one all the way to our present day, House of Cards may have been an oracle this whole time. (laughs) And we just didn't know it until Frank Underwood's narrative happened to coincide with our current presidential narrative. What a narrative that is. (laughs) I think, like, to that point, that's one of the reasons why I'm extra struggling to get through this, because normally I I know what I'm in for. This is not that far out of the ordinary for the structure and pace of House of Cards. But following the election, I watched all of Parks and Rec again, and it was what my soul needed. And this is the opposite of what my soul needs (laughs) in These Are Modern Times. (laughs) On a more positive note, I now have a new line to shout during my morning commute, which is just, I will not yield. (laughs) I will not yield. (laughs) I will say for Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright both that through this entire season, there are a lot of really good instances of eye rolls and meaningful camera looks. Mm -hmm. There are some really gifable moments. Which is always important. Yeah, that's really all I'm here for. I literally still use the one from season one constantly that says, I have no patience for useless things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the fan service is definitely still there of, like, delivering these really impactful moments directly from Frank to the rest of us. Mm -hmm. They fucking upped their fourth wall game this season. I don't know if you've gotten to any of these yet, but not It's been noticeably lacking so far. Okay. So you must not have gotten there yet. Mm -mm. But not only has Frank been talking to the camera, but there are multiple scenes where they break from whatever is happening in the actual scene. And everyone else in the scene is sitting completely still in the room. You must have seen one of these already when he's talking to the governors. Maybe. Everyone else in the scene is sitting completely still and Frank is now just like walking between them delivering his monologue to us, the viewer. Mm-hmm. And I wish I had a better way to describe it or like a more specific example without delivering spoilers because a few of these happen at particularly impactful moments in the plot, as you might be able to expect. But it's an incredible artistic device. Like it is so much more powerful than Frank just talking to the camera. Mm. I have really strong feelings about some of those fourth wall breaks. There's also one that happens, I think it must happen in episode 12 based on my notes, but there is one that happens that completely breaks my ability as a viewer to navigate my relationship with the show and the show's relationship with the fourth wall. Oh boy. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. When you see it, you'll know. I trust that. It had that effect on me where it felt really profound in terms of like the viewer text relationship. And then there was also this moment where there was this tiny voice in the back of my head that was like, is that really how I wanted that to go? (laughs) All of you out there who've been waiting for it will know it when you see it. 
Oh, boy. So how many times did you miss Meacham this season? God, I, I miss Meacham all the time. Frank is always with Secret Service people now. Like, he, there's a bunch of bike rides that he takes with Secret Service people, and he makes a new friend this season. And, like, it just makes me miss Meacham. Reachum! Reachum! <laughs> Pour one out for Threechum. Aw, Threechum. Threechum was just such a good guy. Was. Good, good Threechum. So do you have any other key points, or do you want me to talk about my other beef? With, not beef. My compare and contrast, shall we say. So the the one wandering thought that I was tracking the entire season is that I think House of Cards has my least favorite Oval Office of all Washington, D.C. shows. Why is that? It's just kind of lame as fuck. Like, every every TV White House is trying to emulate the real White House, right? But, like, we all know what the Oval Office actually looks like because we have the internet, and God knows Philip Sousa took enough fucking pictures of the Oval that, like, we all know what's going on in there. And so the yeah. Oval is, like, yellow, and the couches are, like, cream and striped. But the House of Cards Oval is mostly blue. It's also, like, infinitely smaller than, like, the Veep Oval Office. The Oval Office in Veep is, like, a, seems more expansive. Is that and on like, purpose? I don't know. And it also just feels really sparse. It f- feels very dull to me, but I'm wondering if that's supposed to convey that, like, the presidency isn't enough. Whoa. Shit. Whoa. <laughs> How's that for analysis after only watching five and a half episodes? <laughs> I can carry my own in this podcast. <laughs> that, hadn't, that hadn't actually occurred to me before. I'm reeling a little bit. You well, because in the begin in the first few seasons when they did show it, it seemed like it was it was bright and it was a little bit more of a like an enviable office. I can't find my pen and I need to write this down so badly. <laughs> Do you want me to write it down for you? I We should study this. This deserves a critical analysis. Oh, dear God. Holy shit, because what a symbol. I know. That symbolism, though. No, but really, that completely changed everything I was thinking. Here I thought <laughs> it was just like some bitches were really cheap about their set design. I was like, well, the the oval in Veep is, like, super chill, and the oval in the West Wing is probably fine, and I can't remember any other shows at the White House right now because I'm so distracted by the fact that you're probably fucking right, and that House of Cards is better at symbolism than I give them credit for. <laughs> You've given them credit for their visuals over anything else. I know, it's, like, the one thing that they do well. They can't write, so they just use visual symbolism, and I missed the most important one of all. I mean, maybe. It's also possible I'm wrong, and this whole thing will come tumbling down once we go back. Like a house of cards. Oh. <laughs> 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 well, shit. Well, shit. Not to derail your point, you can carry on. All I can think about at this moment is going back in time, in House of Cards time, and taking screenshots of the Oval Office and comparing them through the evolution of Frank's presidency. Because he was in the Oval Office in season one, and you're right, it was brighter back then. 
Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you have time in between making super cuts of like rom-com music scenes like we've asked in previous episodes, <laughs> please send me that photo collage. This feels like a really important photo collage. I you can send it, it to us on Twitter at HateWatchWithUs. <laughs> <laughs> or do you want Kirstie's direct mailing address? Because we can provide that too. <laughs> if you can have it hand-delivered by three chum. Three chum! Three chum! <laughs> What's your beef, Kelsey? <laughs> I don't know if it's a beef, but it's a thought in my brain as I've been watching this season. This was the first season of House of Cards that I've seen since I watched all of the Americans. And every... I don't know if it's made this viewing experience even worse that I have now have that knowledge, because I think... The two are similar in a lot of ways, and The Americans is often doing a lot better and more effectively than House of Cards is. So that's just been in my mind as I've watched this season. Um, and it primarily just coming from like the intro alone, they actually have very similar intros, musically in particular. But The Americans ones is about at least half as long. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe even a quarter as long as the House of Cards one. Although I will say, I did watch half of one episode without seeing the intro, and then, long story short, had to watch the whole episode over again with the intro, and the intro did impact my viewing of the episode. Yeah, I think it does for me too, but I think, like, particularly musically on both of those shows, that is what, um, it does have an effect, I guess, on what you're watching. So those kind of tie together in my mind but in a bigger plot sense both of these shows are fundamentally in some ways about like a marriage that's also a like co-working partnership situation where on house of cards obviously it's frank and claire you know they have a marriage that's a little bit strange like you you know three chip dynamics happening well it's like a companionate marriage that yeah at some point in time was clearly about love the claim was that it was based on love and trust, but not in, like, a romantic or sexual sense. Right. Obviously, that is also part of their whole, like, they are scheming together and working together, and that trust portion is important in good and bad ways. For what happens down the road and on the Americans, it's obviously a period piece from the, it's supposed to be in, like, 19, early 80s. They are also married, but in a sort of arranged situation as spies planted in the U.S. from Russia, and they, so they are mainly together in a co-working relationship that turns into more of a true um, romantic like marriage based on love further down the road, but that is also at its core definitely about, like, how a married couple or a partner, you know, a partnership can work, um, especially when they're working together professionally as well. <laughs> it's also... You know, it's prestige in the same way it has, it's very visual, visually, like, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's also very narratively complex, but I think they do a better job of being concise. And, you know, there are just as many random characters, and it's very, you know, it can be very political. You know, you're in embassies, and you're in the FBI, and then you're in, like, weird spy situations that are being set up. But they do a lot, a a more efficient job of managing story and managing all those characters, at least from what I'm seeing so far and what I've seen before in House of Cards. Well, and the thing that you texted me in particular is that the thing that they do 
infinitely better than House of Cards is having highly detailed conversations. So like conversations yeah. that are extremely rooted in dry government policy and the stakes of that policy. And often it's also in Russian, so you're reading it in subtitles. <laughs> Shit, no way. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole other ball game. Yeah, I feel like, and it could just be from the simplicity of the story, you know, but that's also part of the writing, so they could figure it out too in House of Cards, but it can be very dry material, but they still do a very good job of keeping you interested and making you understand what's happening, which I feel like sometimes House of Cards just says a lot of political words in hopes that you pick up like the gist of it. So they're not really dumbing it down, but they're just, you know, making you understand what's happening and making you understand the stakes a little bit more. And I think I also care about 100% of the characters on that show on both sides of like the spectrum politically. Because everyone in House of Cards is just sort of evil and empty. Yeah. And I think they're in it for the long game, the same way House of Cards is. They just... Maybe they've learned a thing or two from House of Cards. You never know. <laughs> the biggest question that I'm walking away from this season with, and I don't feel like this is a spoiler given where we begin season five, but is this story really about Claire all along? Yeah. I have struggled so much this whole time with Claire because I loved her from the beginning Stuff is getting kind of weird with her now, so, like, my feelings are murkier. But I always felt like the show really struggled to figure out, like, what to do with her and what they wanted her to be, and it felt like she was sold out pretty easily for, like, some cheap plot points, especially in season two. Mm-hmm. But I feel more and more like this is Claire's story more than Frank's. I don't think that's wrong. I'll be interested to hear sort of where you're at with that at the end because I think like I'm about I'm about to get into some like personification shit Frank does everything he can through the end of the season to ensure that all of it is his no matter what Mm -hmm. and I still think Claire emerges with it all being about her it wouldn't surprise me especially knowing like what House of Cards is is here for to have that be like the big revelation at the end of the series that was really about claire all along yeah there is this one moment though that i'm grappling with for a lot of different reasons it sort of hit me in a lot of different areas but where i think it was it was a turning point for claire where some storylines converged and there were some parallelisms with frank that we saw in earlier seasons Mm -hmm. and i think it was really all about proving the point about power and how far people are willing to go to achieve stuff and whatever. But if the story is really all about Claire all along, they had to use Frank to get her there. And there's the moment where she has to become Frank to get there. Mm, interesting. Does she kill a puppy? You might put it that way. Oh, dear God. <laughs> I really wasn't expecting that response. <laughs> Um, (laughs) oh no yeah I mean that among other things is like some stuff I would really like to talk to anybody about because I'm very much processing it and it's still like it's something that I'm spending a lot of time reflecting on on that note I want to talk less seriously about power Claire and power Claire's hair 
let's I want to hear your feels after I mean I already heard them but I want to hear them again your feels okay so I mean Claire's hair is iconic like Robin Wright's hair in the pixie is iconic and there was a period of, t of time in my life where I had had a couple of terrible haircuts and so I decided to get a pixie and really I did it because of Robin Wright it was after watching season one of House <laughs> of Cards so anyway I think the first time you see them playing with Claire's hair as a symbol of self-realization. And for me, this is what it all boils down to is like Claire's hair as like symbolism for either like identity or transformation or self-realization. I think it's the third, but it's used in a few different ways is when she becomes UN ambassador, which is what season three mm -hmm. and she abruptly dyes her hair brown. Yeah. And that was weird. Like I was not into that period in the narrative. However, one small thing I appreciate, and this is somewhat of a sidebar, is them allowing a woman to to play out the trope of fucking with her hair in the midst of a life crisis slash transition, mm -hmm. but harnessing it in a way so that it's not like trite and silly. So anyway, so she dyes her hair brown, and then when the UN thing comes crashing to the ground because Frank sabotages her her hair goes back to being blonde and she sort of brushes it off as like, Oh, it works better in the focus groups for the campaign. So in order to help Frank, I'm blonde again, but really it's ending that like period of independence in her life. Mm -hmm. So then in this season, so this is a spoiler, you find this hair out. Spoiler. Hair spoiler. Well, plot spoiler because they coincide. Sure. It's because of a time jump really but not totally. So episode six opens with Frank, Frank, Claire being sworn in as acting president because of the constitution. It's a long story. And <laughs> it's a few months after the election. So in, during the election, when she was running as VP, she had her trademark pixie. When she's being sworn in, she now suddenly has this like flowing, not flowing, it's still a bob, but like this beautiful, like neck length, curly hair. And then, on one side. Not always, though. They, right. curl it, they curl it in different variations. But it's like, it's a really good look for Robin Wright. Like, it is a great hair length for her. Like, I think she works the pixie. And I, I personally have a thing for women with short hair. It's part of my special brand of feminism. Talk to me about it on Twitter. So that bob looks so good on her. And it marks her transition into her time as acting president. And it, they use her hair through the end of the season, not in the sense that they change it again, but in the sense that from that point on, it stays in that style to mark her transition in her marriage. And I'd also like to point out that this is not like frilly curls. This is like a finely hairsprayed curl at such an angle that I think she could slice someone's like throat with it if she angled <laughs> her head properly. She also sometimes wears it straight and sometimes wears it in a slightly better wave and sometimes has, like, two curls versus a head of curls. Like, they fudge around with it more a couple episodes later, but there's, like, three episodes straight where it is, as Kelsey describes, where it literally looks like a weapon of mass destruction. The other thing that's noteworthy about it, and, like, it's a detail, it's, like, a very Elle Woods detail, but it's why I spend so much time fixating on Robin Wright's hair, <laughs> is that... There was an intentional choice in the filming and in the production. So either they filmed all of the scenes that required 
Robin Wright's hair to be short right after a haircut, or they had her grow her hair out in between seasons, or she just did it, and they filmed the second half of the season, and then she cut her hair, and they filmed the first half, to, a half of the season. And the reason that this is noticeable is because Robin Wright actually has very dark roots and dyes her hair blonde, and to keep your hair that short, you have to cut it every, like, six weeks. And you can actually watch episode to episode, like, Robin Wright's hair kind of changing lengths as it's growing out, like, basically week to week, because that's what that length is like. And so, <laughs> so in the second half of the season, when her hair is longer, there were at least two different trims that I could see where her dye job changed a little bit. And so at some point in the production schedule, there was an intentional choice that she would have one hairstyle versus another. Unless it was extensions. I mean, it made, even if it was, it's still an intentional choice. Yes, yes. And so much of my belief about how you read a text comes from the fact that nothing in a text exists until a writer or a cinematographer, or someone brings it into existence, and they would not have made that choice about Robin Wright's hair by accident. No. There is too much consistency for that to be meaningless. That's true. So that's how I feel about Power Claire and her power hair. You do love her power hair. I love her power hair so much. Especially because, like, I know so many women who feel very strongly about maintaining long hair. Like, I know at least five women who cry when they get their hair cut and it gets cut an inch too short. <laughs> like, that is a common story that I have heard. And I don't say that to pass judgment if there are any listeners out there who feel that way themselves. Like, your hair is your own. You gotta do you. But, like, I am a woman who feels like all women should feel comfortable having short hair. And so Robin Wright and Claire Underwood are very important to me as women who use hair as a symbol. <laughs> I'm really glad you got that rant in. I got all of it in. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> it was important for everyone to hear. And I'm yes. not saying that sarcastically, even though my voice is permanently sounding like sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, no, that's just you at baseline. No, I've been harboring these feelings for literally five seasons. It's true. I talk about Claire's hair every season. <laughs> It's, your, it's like the main reason you watch. <laughs> that and her high heels, which her high heels are a completely different symbol for another day. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts or feelings, Kelsey, that we haven't hit yet? Besides that, Mr. Wannabe President, whatever his name is, Conway. would have been a really great early 2016 heartthrob. True that. I find Conway distracting to be on screen for too long because his shoulders are so big. That eventually I'm like, you're a large sir. He is a large sir. Does he have like the Raphael effect on you? Yes. Almost. That should be trademarked. Not quite. But similar issue where it's like you look at him and you were like, you are a pretty sir. And then the more <laughs> I look at him in a button up, the more I'm like, no button up shirt was really made for the size of your upper body, was it, sir? <laughs> Dear sir, would you like to remove that stuffy button-up shirt? <laughs> Dear sir, your shoulders look like they need some room to breathe. <laughs> wow. Oh boy. So if you have so... any thoughts on, dear, on large sirs, take that for what you will. large sirs, power hair. 
If you have thoughts or feelings about all of the above, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HateWatch with us. Or you can send all of that to us in a PG-rated fashion to our email at HateWatchWithUs at gmail.com. <laughs> PG? I, mean, I monitor the email. There's only so weird I'm willing to get. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> And so for all you cool listeners, listeners out there who are looking for a more a less vague recap of House of Cards season five, we will try and put something together for you once I have completed the season, so that we can do final thoughts together. You can look forward to some kind of mini update, like mid midweek episode, um, to sort of wrap up final thoughts and feelings. So, if you'll recall from way back in the day of Hate Watch with us. We were really f- huge fans of a concept called Lil Higgy. So Lil Hig. Lil Hig. We're going to transport back to that moment in time when we were just conveying our feels about Lil Sebastian and Higgy put together. <laughs> That's really where we need to find ourselves mentally for this <laughs> next segment. So once you've meditated a little bit on Lil Higgy, um... What we're going to be talking about now is TV that you can knit to. So, Kirstie, what did we do this weekend? So, for those of you who may not have this background knowledge, the largest yarn store in the country, in all of these United States of America, is in central Massachusetts. And it is a warehouse store called Webb's, America's Yarn Store. Do not look it up. That's what it's called. And when you put the address into Google, the Google Voice says Webbs America's Yarn Store. It is a a reasonably large commercial warehouse full of yarn. Which, if you are not a a knitter, it is important that you know that yarn stores are like one of the single most important like places of comfort to a knitter. It's like. It's just, like, a happy place full of, like, soft things and quiet. And the best thing is, it's like being at a museum, but you can touch everything. Yes. And, in fact, you have to touch everything. Right. So if you're someone like me who's, like, super handsy and has to be playing with stuff all the time, it's basically, like, your dreamland because everything is there for you to play with. And it's also arranged just so pleasingly. In arrays, which we found out Kirstie is a huge, huge sucker for. (laughs) Yes, I will buy anything if you place it in an array. And if you are out there trying to conduct market research on, like, shelving or some shit, I'm ready to be a test subject because I know a lot about rainbows and gradients. You do. So, yeah, we went there yesterday with our moms, who are also knitters. Yep. And it was a really great time. And it got us thinking that we should do something on Hate Watch with us that was timely to our own lives because it's our (laughs) podcast. And yeah, so we were thinking about TV and I guess other media content you can throw in there that you can knit to. And this is important to us and I'm assuming other knitters, hopefully, because (laughs) knitting is something that you do need to like put a certain amount of focus towards but sometimes you don't need to put all of your focus towards it sometimes there's things that you can just do and you want to be doing something else at the same time so for me it's my favorite thing to do while I watch tv 
and it justifies all my TV viewing because I'm also knitting something. Well, um, what's funny about knitting is that like there's different types of attention. So there are some projects that require somewhat constant focus, either because you're always counting or actually it's mostly really just about counting. Right. And then there's other projects that are pretty rote. So like, you know, if you're doing a seed stitch where it's like knit one, purl one for the entire fucking project, you don't need to dedicate a ton of energy to that because muscle memory for the most part takes over, but you need to keep enough of your conscious going to not fuck up your row count. Exactly. So some overarching challenges when you're choosing something for, you know, to watch while you're knitting, um, (laughs) Things like subtitles, not great yep. when you're knitting. Not I great. I have found myself many a time picking up a knitting project and turning on Jane the Virgin or the Americans, and like, <laughs> I black out for a while, and then 20 minutes later, I have not done anything on my knitting because I got distracted by the reading. I definitely didn't appreciate the narrator's use of the screen in Jane the Virgin until the time that I was trying to knit a, a hat that has a peacock feather pattern and I was like oh it's easy because I do the first chunk of it and then I just repeat the chart for the rest of the row and I couldn't look at the hat and the screen at the same time and then suddenly I was like wait they're doing a lot of stuff on the screen yeah it's very distracting if you (laughs) like aren't paying attention all the way and you're like I think I missed something so subtitles are out unless you're willing to sacrifice not reading them or not knitting. Anything that's super visually complex that has a lot going on that isn't verbally spoken can also sometimes be tricky. And then my number one rule that is just not knitting after 10 p.m., whatever you do. That is so critical. It doesn't matter what your project is or it like nothing matters. Put your needles down. Every futile, fatal mistake same thing (laughs) happens after 10 o'clock with a knitting project one of the things that I enjoy is having to do like project pairing so like so I always have multiple projects going at any given time because I like like sometimes I want to knit for like six hours straight but I don't want to knit the same project for six hours straight because one has too much counting and I need a break so each level of attention requires a different type of tv show so if you're doing, like, I'm doing a blanket right now that is pretty simple, but it's, like, chevron, so there's a lot of, like, knit to knit togethers, and there's counting in between all the knit togethers and stuff. So mm-hmm. I have to pay enough attention to what I'm doing. So, like, something formulaic, like a rom-com or a procedural, mm-hmm. is super clutch for that, because you generally know what's happening, you know the framework of what's going on on the screen. I would like to add to that sitcoms, usually in general, yes. like a very traditional sitcom. Yep. Anything on HGTV? Yes, HGTV is fantastic knitting television because they are in the same spirit. Right. Great British Bake Off is a decent one, but sometimes you get too wrapped up in the competition to knit. I've tried knitting for that one, and I do get too caught up because I like watching them do the actual decorating. Yeah. And I really like watching the judging. Like, I like watching... Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood actually eat the stuff. And so I have to put down my knitting. And if I'm in the middle of a row count and I have to put it down, then I lose count entirely. Right. So that's a tricky one, but you can sometimes handle it. Something else that's always great or just a rewatch of something that you love. 
mm-hmm. and you're familiar with because again it's that like you don't have to pay that much attention but it's still going on so like throw on the office or parks and rec or friday night lights and just like cozy up with your knitting and it's perfect that feels like the true spirit of little higgy that's true it is anything i don't know any movies can sometimes be a little tricky because of either complexity or just duration of them but i feel like a good 40 minute show is the perfect length of time for at least me to like sit and knit something and then put it down and be like all right i'm done i mean i think it depends on the project too like i have this one herringbone blanket that i've been working on all winter and so i've done one panel and i need to finish the other panel but that one i know i'll only do two to four rows in one sitting yeah. And that's usually, uh, it's a really bulky yarn, so each row doesn't take super long, except that it's herringbone, which is like doubling stitches, more or less. And so two to four rows can take me a, a longer TV show, like an hour-long drama, or a movie, depending on how often I have to stop and sort of like give my brain a moment. Mm-hmm. And so I think like... Sometimes it's nice to use what you're watching as a way to put bumpers on your time doing the work. So, like, if I sit down and say, like, I only want to do four rows tonight, and then I put on a movie, and then the movie ends, and I'm like, time to put down the needles. Yep. You know, like, that's a good way to remind myself, like, because... One thing knitters are super guilty of is being like, oh, I can do one more row. Yeah, I feel a little tired, but I can get one more row. Mm-hmm. Which is a mistake. Right, that's, that 10 p.m. roll is real. The other thing I'd never recommend is doing any finishing while you're watching something, whether it's like weaving in ends or putting on buttons. Like, it takes too much of your effort <laughs> to do those activities. Yep. To also pay attention to anything that you're watching. I, depending on the work, I can weave in ends while watching stuff. And so for those of you who do not knit, weaving in the ends is the single worst part of knitting. I, every single knitter I've ever known has agreed with me. And if you're a knitter who disagrees with me, find us on Twitter at hate watch with us because I have questions for you. And so I had this one project. It was like a stripey scarf where I had to change colors every like 11 rows or something. And so I ended up with, I want to say it was like 28 ends that I had to weave in. Yep. And so I would do it as I went, but like I had a couple of days where I did like 10 ends at a time. And I watched stuff while I did that because I was just, you know, yeah, zipping it in there. But that was also just like straight stocking at, stocking that, stocking at, straight stocking at, whatever. Words are hard. Um, they are. So yeah, I mean, it definitely depends on the work. Yeah, I think also um, Tina Fey shows are really yeah. good for knitting because they're verbally joke heavy. So you don't have to watch too much. So like 30 Rock or Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is really, really great knitting content. And Gilmore Girls, actually. I got a lot of work done during Gilmore Girls. Really? It's very, again, like it's very verbally focused. Oh. And it's, it's like a little snowflake bubble of coziness and little higgy to begin with. So it's the <laughs> right tone to be knitting to. Yeah, I mean, I like... I look for things that are pretty quiet and tonally consistent. Like, you wouldn't want to knit to Game of Thrones because there's, not just because there's stuff happening, because I do find that that's, like, also a pretty verbal show. 
so in theory you could get away on that rule but it like there's too much change in the sound and there's yeah. too much sense of urgency and like and you miss some of the dick jokes you miss all the dick jokes and so like i tend to look for things that are tonally consistent and and like not dense even if it's something i could listen to also i don't personally like knitting during sports there Ew. is apparently there is a community on twitter that is very into knitting during sports but i it's too stressful for me. I also don't always knit during new content. Like, I do yeah. tend to be more of, like, a rewatcher and knitter. But I do know a lot of people who will use pre-Christmas knitting as their time to get through, like, TV shows that they haven't watched before. So, like, I knew someone a couple years ago who got through The Wire doing all of her, like, Christmas socks. How do you get through The Wire and knit? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I knit throughout most of the winter for you know most every show that I watch I'm knitting during and it just it just justifies all the tv I watch so in the summer I just watch tv and have no excuse (laughs) you knit more than I do in the summer though I'm about to (laughs) yeah that's for sure (laughs) Uh, life choices Uh, you you teased at the beginning of this conversation other content besides television well I think movies Um, is like an only movies you're not a doing cheat. like audio content i never listen to podcasts unless i'm in the car mm-hmm. because i feel like i need my eyes to be doing something else besides looking at my yarn <laughs> um but i feel like that's something that yeah. you may have done so that's why i teased it well so i i don't listen to podcasts while i'm knitting but in terms of other forms of multitasking which for non-knitters, this could be relevant. I really like, I don't play video games with the non-diegetic sound on, so like I video game sound, but I love listening to podcasts while I play video games. That's so weird. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I, that's just like a really fun time for me to listen to podcasts. Reply All in particular is really fun to listen to while playing either Hyrule Warriors or Mario Kart. Interesting. That's real weird. (laughs) Oddly specific recommendation for all of you out there. Yeah, I so I listen to a lot of content, a lot of my podcast content while playing video games or while generally doing work. So if I'm doing data entry or answering emails, that's like a solid time for me to be listening to podcasts. But for knitting, I really can only watch TV. Well, there you go. Well, if you have any thoughts about what you like to watch while you are knitting or crafting or otherwise multitasking, you can tweet them to us at hatewatchwithus. Or you can email them to us at hatewatchwithus at gmail.com. Also, if you have any good knitting patterns that you want to share with us, feel free to send those to our email. Yeah! I have a fair collection of baby patterns I can share back to you if you're interested in those. Oh my god, we could have like hatewatchwithus knitting circle. (gasps) Let us have that! Be our friends. Hey, watch with this knitting circle. Done. Done. <laughs> Patented trademark. Don't you even try to infringe on us right now, listeners. If you think this is a good idea, please tell us. <laughs>
I hate watch with us. You can also find us on Tumblr. Our Tumblr is hatewatchwithus.tumblr.com. Our Tumblr has a bunch of content about rom-com education, which you heard about in episodes 13 and 14. You will notice that in this episode there was no rom-com education because we had other stuff to talk about. Rom-com education will probably come back next episode with peak rom-coms and Badlands rom-coms. It's a big one, guys. It's going to be a big one, so make sure you have your knitting patterns handy. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. (laughs) I hope you all find your little Higgy in the meantime. (laughs) Sounds so wrong. (laughs) The little Higgies show you the way. Oh, dear God. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye.